Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I've loved this day so far. It's been a wonderful day, and the show is going to be fantastic. Um, I'm just enjoying the very much like Southern California weather today here in Minneapolis, and my guest lives in Southern California, so we are in the same weather zone today, which makes me happy. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace is a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective and is becoming um, probably one of the the most amazing voices on the national scene uh, as a speaker and apologist. He's a best-selling author, and he uh, travels all over the country, all over the world for that matter, uh, giving his unique brand of uh, apologetics. And he is also a professor, adjunct professor of Christian apologetics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola, and also a faculty member at Summit Ministries. So let's... Uh, Let's just leave it there and just welcome him to the show. Jim, nice to have you back. That's enough, don't you think? That's <laughs> it's kind of uh, <laughs> <kinda> enough. <laughs> I always get embarrassed when you write a promo or you write a, you know, who oh, are you online right. before you know it. People start reading it. I'm like, oh, no. Right, so, right. But, yeah. but uh, I mean everything I say, and I'll always go back to the first time I saw you speak, and it was uh, at a, a breakfast here in Minneapolis years and years ago, and I walked out with a friend I went with, and I said, okay, that was the best presentation of the gospel I've ever seen. Well, I can tell you that that, that you happen to be in a, a ministry a event that is just so open to hearing the gospel, yeah, which is absolutely. always encouraging, right? So, yep. so yeah, I always enjoy doing. Any, it's, it's, I was just telling a friend the other day. We, we make a case for Christian apologists. Typically, are we're here to kind of answer questions and hopefully help people remove the walls that they build up between themselves and the gospel. But we don't often turn the corner and and get a chance to talk about what is the gospel. We're always kind of trying to defend the claims made against Christianity in general. Sometimes those are just claims about what we believe as Christians in a culture that's moving away from Christian values. So you're 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 kind of talking about hot topic issues sometimes and and it's just nice to go back and it feels really good just to be able to share the core oh, yeah. simple gospel, right? So because yeah. that's what has the power. It's not like all of our defense has a has power. It's 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 the gospel as given in the New Testament that has all the power. Yeah, amen. I've got a list of things to talk to you about today, but I want to start okay. with kind of a softball. Uh, angry atheist, redundant? Uh, well, okay. It, some people would say it would. You know, there's like this kind of this idea. This there used to be a meme that would go around. You know, someone like a Richard Dawkins would say, you know, uh, there is no God, and I hate him. You know, that kind of that. And it seems like it's an inconsistent statement. If there is no God, why? What are you angry about? What do you hate? <laughs> if there, if you don't believe this God exists, why are you mad at God? But I think that for me, as a as a as a guy who would have called himself not angry, maybe looking back, but I would have at least said obnoxious. You know, or or adamant or dogged or something like that. And, and what it was was that I, number one, did not believe there was a God. And worse than that, I, I believe that Christians held a view that was harmful. In other words, your your belief in something that's not true is not benign. It has an impact on the rest of us. So the anger, I think most atheists would say, is not that they are angry at a God they don't believe exists. 
they're angry that there are so many people who are stupid enough to believe in this God, and they try to dictate the way we should live. Interesting. That's what we would have said. Interesting. Know? Yeah. That's a great answer. I remember a conversation that Hitchens had with uh, a Christian who said, I'm a liberal Christian. I don't know if you know this story. Uh, I can't think of her name right off the top of my head, but she said, I don't, I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. And, he, and she said to Hitchens, do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And Hitchens, to his credit, came back and said, I, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and the Messiah, that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. That's right. No, that's that's a very good point. And I think that, but at the same time, Hitchens would have said, but that belief in all of those doctrinal positions we typically hold as, as traditional Christians is, number one, a false belief. It's not true. And number two, it has a detrimental outcome because it, it – and I don't know if he would go so far as to say this, but I think that most folks would say where it's a problem is when it, it limits my freedoms, right? And, and so – and they would, of course, include that in terms of all kinds of freedoms, sexual freedoms, cho- freedoms of all kinds of a choice uh, you know, to, 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 uh, for abortion, all kinds of issues that – you know, in the end, it's sad, but it's true. All of this has become so politicized. It all eventually, in our culture, the way it's the way it's constructed right now, everything seems to be expressed through some kind of political framework. So in the end, you could have a discussion about religion, a discussion about Jesus, but it's going to be polarizing, and not just polarizing along kind of the theological grounds. It becomes almost immediately politically polarizing because we have so um, deeply connected. Um, religious uh, beliefs to either one side of the aisle or the other. So that's that's the problem, I think. And I think that most people, even those of us who are, who are Christians, would say that that probably was not something that's helping us uh, share the core gospel with people. Mm-hmm. Jim, when we run into people and we try to share our faith with them and they, they start pushing back, do you think that it, in more cases it's pride and arrogance or emotional baggage? Well, okay. So, look, in the end, I hate to say that it's something like that because because I think that it's not fair to. First of all, I don't know what's in the hearts and minds of every single non-believer out there, right? So, I have to be really careful to try to like categorize people like that. And also, I would have said as an atheist, don't don't try to tell me that you don't think I've got a rational leg to stand on. Don't tell me you don't think I, I have rational um, grounds to re- to reject your beliefs. Um, but I do think if we cut right to it. That all of us hold beliefs for a number of reasons. Um, and when we pick a jury, for example, we have a process, and in that process, we're trying to help weed out those people who are less likely to make. We really need them to be like engineers that puzzle together and solve this thing as 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 rationally and as detached as they can be. But I, I actually know that when people make a decision from evidence. It's not just the rules of evidence they're considering. They're not like these robots that say, okay, I've got no skin in the game. I've got no prior desires, no prior um, experiences that I drag into this trial, no prior likes or dislikes, no wiring that's kind of the way I'm wired. I'm this kind of a person or that kind of a person. It turns out all those other things are as influential in making your decision as just the presentation of evidence was. And the reason why we have a jury selection process is to try to limit how deeply you are connected to other ways of reasoning through. So, you know, if you, for example, that's why they'll ask questions like, well, have you ever had anybody in law enforcement? Was it a good experience? Was it a bad experience? You know, what is your general perspective? What's the baggage you're dragging into this trial with you mm-hmm. uh, that will keep you from making a purely – and this is a, true for decisions about Christ also. You know, we're not like blank slates. We bring an entire – 
set of wants and desires, the way we'd like our lives to be, the way we'd like the world to be, all of our past relationships, all of our hopes for future relationships, all of these things are the way we look at the presentation of the gospel even. You know, should I, if I believe this is true, if I was to accept this as true, how does it change and impact all that other stuff? And that's where, where a lot of us make decisions, not based on whether you know it's factually true or not, but whether we want it to be true. It's a mm-hmm. volitional resistance, right, that we don't want it to be true. We'll find – most of us who don't want something to be true – look, you saw this even with the Robbie Zacharias um, investigation, right? There were a lot of people on the board of RZIM who were people who were working with Robbie Zacharias, even his own family members, I suspect, who would tell you – I think his daughter just wrote with us last week – that it wasn't so much about what are the facts on the charges being leveled against Ravi. It was really about, I, I can't believe this is true. I don't want to believe this is true. There's, if, this believes, if I believe this is true, it shakes my whole being in terms of, of like, what, could anybody be – I mean if he could be guilty of this, how can I have confidence in anybody going for it? You can see why there would be a lot of reasons why people would not want to believe it's true. And, and I think that's really a, sometimes the tail that wags the dog. Mm-hmm. Jim, if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd love a little short lesson on jury selection, because when you're interviewing people, who gets to decide uh, ultimately who gets on a jury? Because well, if, okay, so, yeah. so each side has, has uh, options. Uh, so you'll bring in a larger jury pool than you need. If I was just uh, my friend of mine, is, John Lewin, is trying the Robert Durst case in Los Angeles. It's a big case that there's a podcast called Jury Duty in which they're going through the trial day by day in real time, just reporting on the trial. But this is a very famous case nationally. And I was talking to him last weekend. They impaneled, I think they impaneled 12 jurors and 11 alternates because they knew that over the course of this four-month trial, there was a good chance that some of these 12 were going to get popped off the jury. Now, how could that happen? Well, here's what happens. You call this huge room full of jurors in. And you're only going to impanel. Usually, for my cases, it's going to be like you know, 12 jurors in the box, maybe four to six alternates. So in case over the long trial, some of these jurors have to come out of the box. We have alternates that can sit in. The alternates will be there every day of the trial, listening as though they're jurors, but they won't get a vote unless somebody comes off the 12, and they get placed in. Now, why do you pick that many jurors? Well, why you're going to go? How do you get from let's say 75 or 80 or 400 jurors down to the ones you're going to need? Well, that's a process of selection. And each side can kind of kind of uh, examine the jurors in advance. We we sometimes will use questionnaires. We'll distribute questionnaires to all the jurors, and we'll get a couple of days to review them, so we have a sense of who's in the room to begin with. So does the other side, and then the, each side has a certain number, depending on the state and jurisdiction and the kind of trial it is, of how many jurors they can exclude. So if you did, if you have you know the first five jurors are going to come in out of that big group, if you think number three and five you really don't want. Well, you can use your exclusions, but if you use them all up early, the other side is just going to stack the jury with whoever they want. So it's this game of cat and mouse back and forth between the defense and the prosecution, trying to get the jurors they want in the box and exclude the ones they don't want and reserve enough exclusions to be able to go through the entire – to get the entire set of 12 plus the alternates selected. So it's a bit of a uh, – it's, a, it's a, a bit of a struggle, but I, I always say this, that – as sad as this sounds, we don't win cases in opening statement, and we don't win cases during the evidence show, and we don't win cases during the closing argument. We win cases in jury selection. If you don't put the right people in the box, you don't get the outcome you're hoping for. And this is not just true for prosecutors. This is true for defense attorneys as well. Mm-hmm. Jim, after the break, can I ask you, I mean, there's so many uh, police departments that are defunding, uh, getting defunding programs happening, and people are retiring, and they're 
and they're in uh, they're kind of sidelined because of the stress. So I want to ask when I come back, can you be a Christian and a police officer? Okay. Sound good. Jay yeah, Warner Wallace good. is my guest. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. I suggest you go there often. Coldcasechristianity.com. Jim's got tons of amazing resources, podcasts, videos, writings, books. Everything is there. Coldcasechristianity.com. Be right back. He's a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. You can learn all about Jim there. Um, Jim, there's so many uh, issues nowadays with police officers. I know they're uh, retiring at a pretty rapid pace, and there's they're having a hard time finding applicants that want to become police officers. I would love for you to comment on what it's like to be a, a Christian and a police officer. Can you Can you be one? Can you do it? I'm sure you can. Yeah, let me just say one thing, because you said before the break about defunding. I, I think sometimes we talk about this, you know, defunding the police. I've heard so many, seen so many memes on one side or the other, this idea that, that you know, uh, how stupid would it be to defund the police? And then, of course, the, the, the counter-argument is, well, that's not what we mean when we say defunding. I know, I hear that. We don't mean we're going to defund the police. We mean we're really, in essence, we're going to reallocate funds, some funds, from a law enforcement personnel toward mm-hmm. other agencies that we think could do a better job in certain areas. Okay, fine. Uh, now, I'll tell you, in the, the first days of this movement, um, that is not what was meant by defunding the police. But if that's what you mean, that you want to reallocate funds, well, there's a way you can say that. You can say we want to reallocate funds, okay? That's very different than defunding right. something, right? Just right. use the ex- proper expression. Yeah. Or, or what you really mean if, is reallocating funds. Let me tell you what that's called. That's called reform. That's what we do when we reform something. We say, okay, we're going to spend money in different ways. We're going to reform. We're going to set processes in place. So, so uh, I don't know any cops who are uh, against reform. I think every occupation and every discipline and every agency of any kind of governmental system is to be in constant reform. We have to constantly be looking at what we're doing. Times change. Situations change. How do we need to change to meet the challenges? We have to be in a state of constant reform, and that always is going to involve the reallocation of funds. And if that's what we're doing, then just call it, call it that. But, but what I heard repeatedly was there was no way to reform this systemically broken uh, the police agencies. That there, the reform was not possible. What needed to be done was defunding, and so that's where I think that most of us would say, "Well, what do you really mean by that?" But let's go back to your original question, though. Can, can um, a Christian be a police officer? I think that part of the that there's, there's two issues that are usually at stake. Number one, I hear someone say that when they're thinking, "Hey, I had I get several emails on this where people will ask, you know, I want to be in law enforcement, but my family tells me that if I was to become a police officer, I would have to do a bunch of things that would violate my my Christian principles." And I'm like, oh, "Really? Like, what do you think it is we're doing over here <laughs> that would be violating your Christian principles?" And, and I, that, so maybe that that's part of it. Like, there's a, some sense that isn't law enforcement innately evil in some way? Now, maybe what they're doing is being very specific about certain levels of force. 
So, for example, there's a rich tradition of Christian pacifism within our, uh, you know, our worldview, in which many, you know, devout Christ followers would say, "I just don't think that I'm in a position where I could ever exercise deadly force, where I could." And so that there, that's definitely a bridge that has to be crossed with people. You know, is do we have biblical warrant in this position as Christians to exercise um, deadly force? And what, and if so, what would be the limited and specific uh, situations in which we could do that, uh, and, and 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 not violate the the moral proclamations and the moral nature of of God? So how you know, is that possible? That's a different question. I do think it is. Obviously, I wouldn't be a police officer as long as I was. I, the first eight years I was a cop, I wasn't a Christian. Um, I did, then did almost another two decades after that as a Christian, and, and everyone knew I was a very outspoken Christian, so everyone knew who I was. And and so I think is it possible to do this? Yeah, my son's doing it now. Um, of course, you're going to have to ask yourself the question: Is it? Do we have a way? Now, is it going to change you? Is it, is it going to be easy to do? No, it's not going to be easy to do as a Christian because the very defense mechanisms that we put in place to do this job are in some ways anti-Christian. And here's what I mean. Uh, I mean, I, I worked homicides for most of my career, and some of them were pretty bad, and involved young kids, and they were horrific because they're not always, you know, they're not just homicides. Usually, there's some form of sex crime involved in this. I mean, just they're, they're horrific cases. And, and so, what I tell people is that the only way you you can work those kinds of cases and not bring that home every day is if you are willing to, you know, draw that circle really tight around the people for whom you're willing to cry. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm willing to cry about things with my, my wife and my kids and maybe my dog, but not my cat. <laughs> There's not many other people who are in that tight circle. So, so that means that I'm able to investigate all kinds of cases because I'm not going to go home and be disturbed by that because I'm not going to allow that victim inside my circle. Now, is that a Christian approach? Uh, no. It's not. I mean, because what Christ is calling me to do is to open the circle as broad as I can open it, to be compassionate and empathetic toward all kinds of people. But if you, if you do that in this job, at some point, you're, you're not going to be doing it well. I've seen people walk off, off crime scenes because they thought that the crime scene was just too, too horrific. It bothered them because they, they, they had a child that age, and they didn't want to be investigating and moving the child around in order to to do the crime scene. And, um, okay, look, you, you, that's because you, you've not drawn the circle tight enough. This is, this, you, you can't cry about this person. Now, that, what that ends up doing is providing a wall between the terrible job and the, the thing you're going to do at home. Uh, but it's also going to be a challenge if you're going to hold a Christian worldview because the, I don't think Jesus would have taken that approach. And, and so the things you, you start to build up as defense mechanisms in some ways can be um, – now, there's other ways as a Christian to handle that, right? You have to keep in mind what is the difference between a body and a soul, that we are soulish creatures – and I think that's what I did. Is I shifted over. You can, you can. I'm not seeing that as the tragedy of a six-year-old who's no longer with us, uh, because I believe the six-year-old's not here. I mean, the six-year-old's still alive and and in the presence of God. So, I mean, you have to have some other mechanism in place. But I do think that's the challenge. It's not so much a challenge of are there evil things you're going to be asked to do on a daily basis that will violate your conscience. That's not the problem. The problem is, are there defense mechanisms that, as you put them in place, will make you less empathetic? Um, and less, um, and you know, that's something that's a bigger challenge, I think. Yeah, Jim, I might just be making this up, but did do police officers basically listen to people lying to them all day long? Oh yeah, I mean, 
here's the other problem. Okay, this is another thing that happens when you're in, if you're working investigations, you have to start with the premise that everyone is lying <laughs> until you prove them otherwise. Okay. Because if you start with the premise that everyone's telling you the truth, you're never going to catch anybody doing anything wrong. You're never going to even look deeply enough. I mean, you're you're basically just too gullible to do the job. Yeah. And we all see that in young trainees, you know, where we got a recruit who's maybe never dealt with the population, the, the culture, the way that you have to do as a police officer. And and you're going to get called to calls every day, probably 99% of them, you're going to have to figure out if someone's lying to you. Uh, and, there's, of course, somebody is and somebody isn't. You've got to figure out who's who. And so the question is, is you know, do you, are you the kind of person who just assumes the, the best in everyone? And that's another problem. As, as Christians, we are – we're not – I mean, we're, we're supposed to be wise. But if, if you – and you have to assume that very – I always put it this way. If, if I stop somebody who's rolling through a red light and he's blowing through the red light, if I walk up on that guy like he's just late for dinner, I may not go home tonight. Instead, I've got to walk up on him like he's the worst criminal that is just mm-hmm. running from a robbery because right. that's the kind of person who will get you killed. Right. So now once you figure out he's not that guy and he's just a guy going home late for dinner, you can kind of back off. But your first point of contact is probably going to be a bit abrupt and more of an officer safety approach where you're going to walk up as if he's a bad guy. Now, meanwhile, if you're just late for work, you're thinking to yourself, why is this cop such a jerk? <laughs> you know, I mean, why is he treating me like I'm a criminal? Okay, I sped to a stop sign. I sped to a red light, but I'm not going to be treated like this. He wants my hands up where I can see him? What is this guy thinking? That, that's like all of a sudden this thing escalates into something worse because uh, you know, you're trying to do your best to these two competing uh, callings you have. One, lay down your life for your community. Are you willing to lay down your life to protect your community? Of course, you, you can't. Yes, you are. Or you shouldn't be doing the job. So that's the first call. The second one is try to get home alive at the end of the shift. And and that those two things are sometimes completely contradictory um, objectives, and so if you do what you're supposed to do for the first objective, you're, there's a good chance you won't accomplish the second objective, and so that daily process of trying to get those two things done is, I think, what leads to a lot of confusion, and people wonder, well, why why are these guys acting this way? Wow, a lot of info. I would think that part part of the daily grind for a police officer would be having to hear shaggy dog stories from people you've pulled over. Yeah, well, I mean, some of it's funny. I mean, look, most of us, I'm not interested, and in, uh, there's a misconception that we're all out there just kind of we have to write X number of tickets every day. And, you know, that is not the case. Uh, and so for me as a patrol officer, I've never worked traffic, so I'm not a traffic cop. I'm just a patrol cop. I mean, I try not to write tickets because, I, 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 do I honestly, do I want to go to trial and court and on my day off for a bunch of ticket <laughs> I don't cases? Think so. Probably not. So, yeah. so a lot of it is I'm trying to change behavior. So if I see someone who's really reckless and I can walk up, the goal is to change behavior. Now, sometimes the only way to change future behavior is to give you a ticket. But I've stopped a lot of people where it's clear that just this conversation we're having is going to change your behavior for some time in the future. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have to write a ticket because the goal is not to just get a ticket. The goal is to change future behavior when you think it's dangerous. Yeah. I'll take a little break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. When we come back, I'm going to ask Jim about how we can live as Christians in a very turbulent world that often rejects what we believe. If you have a question or a comment, let me know what it is. You can send a text to 877-933-2400. Eight four again eight seven seven ninety three faith. Be right back. Do I want you? Oh my, do I, honey? It's the afternoon show with Bill. 
So glad to be back with Jay Warner Wallace. Every time Jim's on the show, I always take lots of notes. My only wish is I could read my own handwriting. Because, you know, it's kind of a bummer. I have all these notes, and they don't make sense. But I love what you say, Jim. You've given me lots of things to think about. And I know my listeners love having you on the program. But I'd love to discuss in this uh, next half hour or so, uh, as we try to, as we live in as Christians in a in a world that is often rejecting what we believe, Maybe we can talk about some of the challenges that we face when we are considering the truth of the Christian worldview. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I always say that I'm not a Christian because it works for me. Um, and I, I don't mean that just to be rhetorically, you know, to kind of try, try saying. I, I, I don't I, – I recognize pretty early on um, that Christianity would make things harder. Uh, for, practically speaking, for me as a police officer, because the the thing, like I was saying before, the mechanisms I put in place to kind of help me cope are mechanisms that really Jesus is calling me to to let go of, to trust Him for this, and and that's hard sometimes. But worse than that, I mean, and more obvious than that, if you read through the Scripture, you'll see pretty quickly that this is not a worldview that Jesus intended to give you your best life. Now, I mean, it's just not that kind of right. worldview. I mean, he says so many times that we will suffer because they they hate him, and they're going to hate you because of me. Um, and, and that's what he said over and over again. I mean, look at the Sermon on the Mount. Most people look at that sermon and say, that is such powerful words from Jesus. And how loving is Jesus in the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. He goes through all of the Beatitudes, and he ends by saying, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Like, that's going to happen. He doesn't say if. He says when. When they do. That's going to happen. He said, uh, you know, he said rejoice and be glad in in that suffering, in that um, the way you're going to be insulted and persecuted and 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 all these false claims being made against you. Uh, He says because, you know, your reward is is great uh, here and now. No, he said your reward in heaven is great. So we have a tendency to think, well, all this is going to do, am I taking a stand for Christ in these unpopular issues related to, oh gosh, you name it now, uh, life, identity, um, sexuality. Mm-hmm. These are, are are positions that for the most part the, the culture uh, rejects, and and this means that they don't longer reject you as a Christian. They actually reject the teaching of your master. And because of that, if you follow his teaching, you will be rejected too. They will falsely claim all kinds of evil against you because of Jesus. And if that's the case, then you have to be in a position where you're expecting that, um, and you recognize that that you're not going to. It's not going to make your best life here and now. You're not going to be popular on 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 social media. You're not going to be popular at family get-togethers. <laughs> that, that's going to stop. But your reward in heaven will be great. And then he he follows that up by saying the two you know um, uh, uh, statements about salt and light. Right, that the very next thing he says that you're the salt of the earth, and he's telling you, but you can't stop being salty. If it, salt loses its flavor, right, it's good for nothing. It's to be trampled underfoot by men. So he's basically saying, hey, in spite of the fact that what I'm teaching you, if you live it, and this is read First John. I mean, if you love Jesus, you have to live what he tells you, and it, it don't tell me you love me and then not, not live it. First John is very convicting, by the way. I hate that book. Anyway, the point is, you know, it's a hard book to read because it's very hard. It, it kind of puts the rubber to the road. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but that means if you love me and you follow what I'm teaching you, that you're going to be, you're going to have, a, you're going to want to stop being so salty. You're going to want to stop shining the light so bright. That's going to be your first inclination is going to be just blend in. I remember when I was in the academy as a police officer, and I tell this to all young recruits, your goal in that four-month academy is to be as invisible as you can be. You know, you do not want a drill instructor to know you by name. You want to be the kind of guy that no one even pays attention to. You're in week 10, and really no one knows who you are. If you can do that, you're doing pretty good. Wow. Uh, and that that's kind of how some of us want to behave as Christians, you know. Can we get through the culture and have nobody notice we're here? Ooh. Just kind of live in our little enclave, you know. Let's stay to go to church, come back to work, just not say anything about Jesus. No one even needs to know I'm a Christ follower. Well, that, he's saying, no, you can't. You can't stop being the salt of the earth. You can't stop being the light. You have to, to, to you know, good works, do your good deeds. You're going to be fu- – and isn't that interesting? He says, let your good deeds – do these good deeds so people see and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Yet – he knows that in spite of your good deeds, you are going to suffer false uh, claims against you and persecution and insults. So you, so get this. When you guys – we're out here together and we're doing the work of God. We're, we're serving. We're loving. They're still going to hate us, and the reason why is because we hold a view that is contrary, especially when it comes to all issues related to sex, is contrary to what the, where the culture is going. And yet we try so hard to protect our reputation. We don't want people saying untrue things about us. But if that's the, the, well, that's the way they operate, then get ready for it. Well, absolutely. I think it was the Benham Brothers who had the uh, the real uh, reality uh, the reality real estate yes, show yes. that got canceled. I think by I forget it was TNT. Whoever it was it canceled before it actually went on because they were uh, they were being um, uh, opposed by um, I, I forget who it was. It was Glad or someone who was opposing them, and ultimately it was a false article written on the eve of the show going forward, basically. You know, it was really – I mean, they already started re- uh, recording or he started filming, and, um, and all efforts to do this legitimately were, were not working. The, the, the network was still going to do the show. Well, then eventually the false article was written, and that was the end of it. And so you're right. I mean, no one's going to play fair at some point. Just know this. They're going to falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That was not inserted after that event. That was inserted 2,000 years ago. This is, this is something Jesus predicted a long time ago. So it can't just be a matter of us saying, well, it's not fair. It's not right because they – well, this is what Jesus said would happen, that it's not, it's not going to be fair. They're going to lie about you. Uh, you're going to say all kinds of false things against you, and that's, that's to be expected. Now, so here's a, here's a question. How much do we love God and Jesus? That's really the question, because what would keep you in a belief system that seems to have no immediate rewards, right? I mean, what would keep you in if you know ultimately that your position as a Christ follower is going to lead to that? Well, it would have to just be a, a huge love of Jesus. It would have to be like, hey, the people who make it to the end, who run the race, as Paul says, to the end, are those who, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the, the ridicule, in spite of the fact that um, you're you're going to have things said against you, you you run all the race all the way to the end. And so I think that's it has to be just really I see it as just a a way of of, of determining how much do we really love them. It's profound, Jim. I I always. When, I, when you when you say things like this again, it's a big nudge. I hopefully to everybody to say, are we salt and light in the world? Are we taking risks? Are we putting ourselves in a position where the ridicule or the opposition could come fast and furious? 
Yeah, if, I actually think that my, part of my problem too is that I always think, oh, there's a certain way I could behave or a certain approach I could take or a certain set of words I could use that could convince so persuasively the other side of the truth of Christianity that I'm not going to suffer any persecution or I'm not going to suffer any false claims made against me or I'm not going to suffer anything negative because I just have to be more persuasive. I just find the right words. Well, it turns out that you cannot be persuasive enough. And you're not going to be able to find the right words. If, you, if Jesus couldn't find the right words, okay, then either are you. And and he riled people up enough, they eventually drove them to the cross. So so I think that in the end, I, I got to let go of this idea that I just didn't do it well enough. Like I like I, you probably feel this way too. Anyone who's listening, you know, if you feel like, well, I didn't maybe I didn't handle that well enough on my Facebook page. Uh, no, actually, no matter how you would have handled it. You're going to cause this kind of ruckus because that's just the nature of the claims that Jesus provided. You think, oh, well, maybe I could have handled that better at, at you know, on Memorial Day when I this big blow up on on, on the, at the barbecue. <laughs> well, you know, to be honest, no matter how, for some people, no matter what you say or how you say it, it's going to result in the same conclusion. Um, mm-hmm. So I think we got to let go of that and just know that that Jesus predicted this would happen. Yeah, Jim, listener just asked, witnessing in general can be challenging given the claims you just stated. I'm wondering, knowing that there will be pushback, criticism, etc., how to discern when to engage despite their expected behavior or ignore them and walk away. Okay, so we, we're, we're going to walk away, but we're not going to ignore them. So that, I think you have to walk away from a lot of people. We don't impanel every, every juror that yeah. comes in the room. A lot of people don't make it on the extreme edges. If they're way too pro-police, they're not going to get out. The defense won't allow it. If they're way too pro-defense, we're not going to let them on as prosecutors. So in the end, the edges, we don't let them on the jury. So we exclude them, and we don't feel bad about it. You should do the same thing. If you've got somebody who you see as an anti-theist, no matter what you say, then you're just not – you're going to stop poking that bear, but you're not going to ignore them. What you're going to do is the two things we can do when our words have, have returned empty, and that is we're going to pray for them, and we're going to model Christ in front of them. Because it turns out that the reason why they're hostile is because God has not yet done that work in their heart to soften them to the to, to the truth of the gospel. I was that guy for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, we have to identify who are those people on the extreme edges. And, and stop thinking that we can our, our rhetoric just needs to be better. Our efforts – look, you make the effort as kindly as you can, and then you spend a lot more time praying and just modeling Jesus' compassion for them in spite of the fact we don't agree with them. And so it really comes down to modeling and praying, and that's, that means you're not ignoring them. You're just not um, – you're just taking a different approach. Instead of trusting in your own ability to, to, to preach the gospel, you're trusting in God's ability to soften their heart. Mm-hmm. Jim, when we get back to facing spiritual challenges, when, when you start to uh, hear the way the world attacks people that make biblical claims, like what Jesus taught about certain life issues, and people say, well, that's hate speech – how much of more? How much more of that is on the way? Oh yeah, it's gonna. It's you. You know that this is really how. If, if you can show that speech is a form of violence, <laughs> then you can treat it in a way that you would treat violence. That's that's really the maneuver here. It's not so much that because you know, if somebody was punching you, you'd say, "Well, we have a, a, a duty to stop somebody from being punched." Well, if they're verbally punching you, and if you can define any um, uh, point of disagreement as a verbal punch. Well, then you can actually uh, justify doing what you would do to stop a physical aggression. 
And so we have to make sure we understand that, you know, it used to be that old expression, right? When we were growing up, sticks and stones will break your bones, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But words will never hurt me. Oof. And that is, I mean, that is still true that words will never hurt you. By the way, do you think that, that, that whatever country ultimately takes over the United States will probably be a country in which the people who are fighting on that side realize that words are never going to hurt them, right? I mean, there are going to be people who are tougher. Uh, we, we have to be a little bit tougher than that, too, right? The words aren't going to hurt us. Mm-hmm. When I think of some of the cultural issues that are happening right now, when I think of the transgender movement, for example, I think 0.58% of the population identifies that way, yet they're so championed uh, in the world. So is that, is the champions, the champion that they're getting, is it in an effort to uh, get at conservatives and Christians who are kind of struggling with this movement and what, what it's trying to do? I don't know if I'm asking that question well. Well, I think it's, there's, there's two issues. Is it really about us trying to, to love and care for the marginalized, even even if they're marginalized based on decisions they make about themselves? But, but is that really what's at stake here? Or is it really just that they, we've discovered um, uh, a talking point or yeah. a point of action that can help us to destroy something we wanted to destroy anyway? In other words, if, if, if really we feel like I don't think there's, there's, it's, it's a, a coincidence that the same – look, this group would love to have the Christian voting block disappear, period. Not just for that issue, but for any reason, just to get rid of that huge monolithic voting block, right? Because we have a tendency to vote in a monolithic way. Mm-hmm. So if you can do something to reduce the size of the monolith or to, to kind of uh, cause it to be more unstable – and I think that's what you, you – so there's, there's, I'm sure there's a percentage of this, an aspect of this, in which the real goal is to destabilize the voting block as much as it is anything else. So just, just know that. I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, the same group that would argue you Christians hold a position about whatever it may be, whatever this position is, you would never probably see them argue the same thing about Islam. Like we're going to publicly, uh, you know, uh, scandalize Islam for it's exactly the same position. They hold the exact same position we hold on this. Yet you'll never see that happen. And well, for, because again, it's this to me seems like it's not so much a theological effort as it is a political effort. And that's where I get to be a little. You know, look, I, I, that's not who I am. I am concerned about presenting the gospel. I mean, I don't want you to ever know who I'm voting for or how I'm voting because it doesn't matter as much as. Is the Bible true, and should we take it seriously? I just stay away from – everything else is so downstream, okay, mm-hmm. whatever your policies might be about any of these other issues. They're all downstream of your worldview. What worldview – how are you seeing the world? So if I got time with somebody, I want to spend time making a case for why this view of the world describes the, view, the world the way it really is. Yeah. And that's what I spend my time trying to do. Cool. After the break, Jim, I want to ask you, how do we deal with people who are really biased against Christianity? Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. I mentioned movies, but you don't seem to dig that. And then he asked me, why did I come to his flat? And have some supper, and let the evening pass by. By playing records, beside a groovy high fly. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. As a matter of fact, just bookmark it, coldcasechristianity.com. You're going to want to go there often, regularly. I go there all the time. 
because Jim keeps that website updated all the time with great videos and articles and uh, blogs and lots of information about the many books he's written and his uh, uh, all of his other great great news and and all all of it is is a lot of it is for free. You just go go get it, right, Jim? Oh, that's our hope. Look, in the end. Uh, I always, always as an atheist, suspect that Christians were only in this because they're trying to make some money. Yeah. Right. You're only selling this because you've got something to sell. Yeah. So what we have to do is do as much as we can. Is okay. What What is the free content? That we, what, what Look, in the end, uh, isn't our constant expression of the gospel just the overflow of what the what the heart is speaking? I mean, this is that's what this is, right? It's just our conversations are an overflow of the heart. So um, yeah, do I write books? Of course I write books because it's the only way to get these things in long form. But but boy, you could probably spend a year reading that website before you ever need to buy a book. That's so true. The goal is not to buy it to sell books because if that was the case, you should write something other than Christian apologetics books. Okay, there's no, <laughs> virtually no audience for that. But I'm just telling you, uh, it needs to be something that is 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 like the gospel is free. Yeah. And if, anytime it's not seen as free, it just hurts the gospel. Yeah. Amen. So let's talk about how to deal with people who are really biased against Christianity. Okay, so so look, you need to have enough conversations with each person in your life to determine that difference. And sadly, a lot of us have not spent enough time in conversation with the people in our world to know where their real position is. Like 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 it's not just are they kind of are they are they open to hearing about the gospel? It's like why are they or why are they not? Do you know enough about their life? I'm not a good listener. I'll be honest with you. When you're a case maker, you're constantly making the case. I, I had to learn to, to make an effort to be a really good listener because sometimes suspects in, in conversations would give me something and I would miss it because I'm preparing my next effort to get to the truth without listening to what they're really saying. To know where their heart is. Also, I, I, I was for a lot of years. I'll be hate to say this, but I wasn't concerned about them as people. I was just concerned with getting the confession. Mm-hmm. And when it changed, when I became a Christian, and then I was sitting in rooms with people, and I really cared about the people. And and you know what? They started to see that I cared about them. That changed the nature of my conversations. So I think part of it is that we – do people think you care about them or you only care about your the, trying to get them to agree with you? That's two different things. And so if I care about people, it means I may be, I got to be happy some days just to say, hey, we had a great day. And Look, this is easy to do with people in your family. Like I, my dad and I, we are very close. I consider him to be my best male friend aside from my own sons. Okay, and and but but I don't have he's not a Christian, and I don't have to go home at the end of the day. He lives in Texas. I visit him regularly. Um, I do not. He does not have to become a believer for me to love him, and have a really good time with him. Okay? I mean, we have a great time when we're together. Most of the time, we're just talking about football, you know, or sports. Mm-hmm. But my point is, um, I think he knows how much I love him. And by the way, it's much easier to influence people that, that know you love them. So I think part of our, our situation here is that, that that's why – I mean it's not just a, one of these trite Christian things you say. You have to love people. But the reality of it is that you already are doing this with certain people in your life. Are you willing to do it with the people who don't agree with you on your position about God? Yeah. Yeah, got to play the long game with people, don't you? I think almost everyone I know, like especially if you ever work with people who are Mormons uh, and you're talking to people who have really, really entrenched – 
deep religious beliefs that are, are communal. They have, they have a community that supports those beliefs. Anyone who comes out of that system will tell you that, yeah, you know, 10 years ago I was talking to somebody and that started this, and I was thinking about it for a while, and then about seven or eight years ago this thing happened, and then two years ago I was in a conversation with someone. In other words, it's always like a journey that takes a long period of time, and that's true for a lot of people. Um, they'll they'll have like a prodigal son experience as an atheist, you know. They'll they'll tell you stories about their journey, and the story may only take a couple of minutes to tell you, but they're recalling events that took a decade to occur. So you have to be you got to be patient because the reality of it is is that yeah, that lot, almost everyone's story of coming to faith is a longer story. It's not a short story. Yeah, and when you have discussions with people, and they will come out and say something like. Well, anybody that says Jesus is the only way, I stop listening, and then I'm I'm done with that conversation. Well, well okay, so every claim you make about truth, every claim you make is exclusive in some way. Uh, mm-hmm. If you said that uh, there, every way leads to 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 God, every belief system leads to God, you're excluding any other system that says the contrary, which is every other system. Okay, if it's Buddhism or whatever, every other system says no, our way leads you to Nirvana, or leads you to God, or leads you to Allah, or leads you to whatever. So every view is exclusive, including the atheist views. They exclude out those that are theistic. So I mean, so this is just the nature of truth claims: is that they exclude alternatives. You know, if I'm drinking a diet coke or I'm drinking, um, you know, uh, poison, you know, one claim excludes the other, right? I mean, so every claim you make about anything uh, is is exclusive. So I don't know that that would that would itself. Look, look, let's put it this way: Do all roads? On your mapping system, will all roads lead you to the front door of J. Warner Wallace? No. Only one direct set of directions. Now, can you get there? You might say, well, I can get there. In the end, is there one address that if you knock on the door, it'll be my house? Is there one correct house to, to knock on? Uh, yeah, there is. <laughs> uh, and so if you could go to my neighbor or the same address just two streets over, you're not going to find me at that house. Mm-hmm. So it turns out the correct location for Jim Wallace excludes all the ones that aren't the correct location for Jim Wallace. The same is true for God, right? You can knock on someone else's door, and if you said, well, I believe in God, well, tell me, but if you described, if you knocked on this door and you said, I believe you're Jim Wallace, who um, punched my brother-in-law, and you punched me in the face. Well, I didn't punch your brother-in-law. You have a false idea about Jim Wallace. Mm -hmm. This does not get you into my house. Having false ideas about me does not get you into my home. So it turns out in order to get in my home, you can arrive there, but in order to get in my house, you at least are going to have to recognize who I really am before I'm going to let you in. Mm-hmm. Why would that be any different with God? And oftentimes people, they don't want to get to know God on God's terms. They want to project who they believe God is based on their experiences and their emotional uh, well, reactions. You notice how this is that one of the hardest things for us to do, I don't care what organization you're part of, the minute you get a new boss and he wants to change everything, you're like irritated because one of the <laughs> hardest things we have to do is to change. We don't, yeah. Nobody likes change. And if you're telling me that there's a, a, a truth about God that is going to require me to submit all of the things I used to do without thinking twice about it, right? Uh, to submit my moral authority to God's moral authority, that's, what, that's the, the, the truest and the most extreme version of change. If you don't like it when your boss changes something at your work, you sure aren't going to like it when God changes everything in your life to align it to his moral will. I mean, that's going to be a hard ask. That's a big ask for anybody. Mm-hmm. I think it's our, our, our hesitancy toward change that lies at the heart of a lot of disbelief. Nobody likes being told what to do. 
No, it's true. I mean, everyone wants to be their own. One of the great things about retirement, I have a pension, right? So I'm retired with a pension. And let me tell you what's great about it. I don't have to do anything. I now get paid for breathing. It's awesome, okay? <laughs> now, it's not much, right? But I just right. learned to live on very little. So it turns out that you can actually do just fine when you don't have a boss. It's right. the most freeing that – I'm working harder now than I probably ever have before. I know you are. But it's a, a matter of choice. I don't yeah. have to makes a difference yeah jim thank you so much for doing the show i love yeah our for sure discussions. so glad to be with you today thank you so much All have right, a good rest of the day jay right, warner yep jay warner wallace has been my guest go to cold case christianity he's written a whole bunch of books cold case christianity uh also written a book uh for kids uh, god's crime scene also got god's crime scene for kids and forensic faith a homicide detective makes the case for a more reasonable evidential christian faith and alive a cold case approach to the resurrection and so the next generation will know training young Christians in a confusing world. That's just a sample of his books. You can go to Cold Case Christianity. I highly recommend you go access that website. He's got tons and tons of free info, uh, videos, blogs, articles. It's a wonderful place. Take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Peter Kapster and I are going to be speaking to Dr. Eric Tanis on the, rede- the redemptive nature of humor in the Bible. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.